in the reading of the scripture that you might stand. We'll be reading two portions this morning in the book of Genesis. So if you'll turn to Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3, we will read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then if you'd turn with me to Genesis 22. Verse 15 through 18, we read this. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we marvel a concept that is too difficult to understand, and that is eternity past and eternity forward, and yet in the midst of a desire to develop a relationship with man, you spun the cosmos to to enter a a period of parentheses within eternity to create a world and to create man and all that has been created. You are the sovereign. Thank you that we experience your mercies and your faithfulness every morning in light of what you have promised on behalf of man. I would ask that even as the scripture shares about Abraham and Isaac, that we too would be blessed in obedience to your call We live in this fallen world, and yet, Lord, you have given us essence. You've given us purpose. You have given us a reason to serve you and to work out the will you have for each one of us. I pray as you breathe out your word this morning, 
that we hear it, and in more so hearing that we become partakers of it. Thank you for the journey you have chosen for each of us. Pray your grace be upon our time this morning. May we hear your word. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, we are familiar in our culture with something called an origin story. Uh, this has shown up recently in mainly superhero movies in the last couple decades. Seems like they're maybe a little less popular now than they were a few years ago. But, you know, the idea is if you really want to understand this character, uh, you might be familiar with their exploits. You know, later on, um, you know, you might be familiar with uh, what Spider-Man does or what Batman does or whoever it is. It doesn't have to be a particular character. It could be a group or an organization of people, but you need to understand where they came from. Well, Genesis is an origin story. And it is an origin story through for a people that God has been working with for centuries and generations, and we come to Genesis to understand how God is working, how God is working through his people. Genesis is the origin story for not only Israel, but for the nations. Really, it's the origin story for the whole world. We understand that, but it's particularly given so that God's covenant people understand where do they come from, where are they going? What is their purpose? And so as we come to Genesis for the first time this morning, we're going to give an overview of the book, give a shape of the whole book, give the shape of the forest before we jump into the trees. But as we come to it, we need to understand that this isn't just fact in the sense of this happened and this happened, and now you know a little bit more trivia. No, this, this book of Genesis is given to shape your identity. If you're in Christ, if you're part of God's covenant people, it is given to shape your identity. And so the big idea, even as we are going to walk through the whole book, just to give an overview, is this, that we want to understand, that you need to understand the scope of Genesis, the whole scope of the book, to begin to shape your identity as God's covenant people. That's what we're going to do this morning. That's what you need to come away with, is to understand the scope of Genesis, to begin to shape your identity as God's covenant people. And the way we're going to do this is I'm going to describe what the occasion for Genesis was for the original audience. That's what we pursue when we read the scriptures. We first pursue, what did it mean to the original audience? Because that's what it means today. Then we're going to ask, well, how does Genesis work? If this is the occasion for Genesis, this is what God was doing with this book for his people. How does he do that in the way that Genesis unfolds, in the way it's structured, in the way that the plot goes? And then what we're going to do is we're going to come back and say, well, okay, if that's true, if this is what the occasion was, is this, if this is how Genesis works, 
then we need to ask the question, well, how should it change us? That's the question we always want to leave our reading and our study of scripture with is how does it change us? Because God gives us his word to shape us, to change us, to mold us, to make us his people. And so that's what we're going to do looking broadly at the book of Genesis this morning. So let's start with this. Let's start with what is the occasion for Genesis? And by using that word occasion, I'm kind of thinking of all the things that you need to think about when you think about uh, who and why, uh, to whom and to why Genesis was delivered. What you need to first understand is that Genesis is not by itself as a book. It actually forms a fifth part of the first five books of the Bible. We talk about them as the Pentateuch, Penta 5, and it's, 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 it's God's Torah, God's law, God's instruction to Israel. You could think of Genesis through Deuteronomy kind of as Israel's uh, constitution in some sense. You see, God gives instruction not only through direct laws, but he also gives instruction through story, through narrative, which is a lot of what Genesis is. But Genesis doesn't stand alone. It is integrally connected with the rest of those five books. Really, it is written from Genesis um, all the way through, through Numbers as one storyline, and then Deuteronomy really reflects on that whole storyline. It is one package deal. It is one part of the composition of the Pentateuch. So that being said, we need to understand that the five books are probably written around the same time. Even though Genesis deals with things that are uh, happening uh, hundreds and thousands of years before uh, to the time of Moses, the time of the Exodus, it is written particularly for the Exodus people. You want to see, uh, see this? It's like, well, what do you mean it's written for the Exodus people? Well, if it's one composition... Where are those people by the end of the composition? What, what audience is Moses writing to? You can see this, the audience that Moses is writing to at the end of Numbers and at the beginning of Deuteronomy. If it's one composition, then it's written to the same people. Well, where are those people? Where are those people? They are here, Numbers 36. 13, very last verse in Numbers, and I'll read a little bit in the first few verses of Deuteronomy. These are the commandments and the rules that Yahweh commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And you're like, where's that? Well, I got a map for you on the screen. It should be on the slides. Should be in there. There you go. Um, There's, see that big red arrow? It's pointing to the place called the plains of Moab. That's where the audience is when Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch is written. Where are they? They are a people that have come out from Egypt, and they have come to inherit, to take possession of the land that is promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the first generation that came out of Egypt decided, no, we're not going to believe God. We're actually going to listen to our own reason. We're going to go our own way. And so God kills off that whole generation by letting them wander in the desert for 40 years. So if the Exodus is dated to say 1445 or 1446 BC, we're talking about 
the second generation, the children of the Exodus generation, receiving the five books of Moses around the same time, sometime in that 40-year period, on the plains of Moab, right as they're about to enter the promised land. They're on the edge of conquest. They're on the edge of taking, wiping out people groups because God told them to do so while leaving some unharmed. But they're there to inherit what they have been promised. And so as you think about that as the setting, the question is, why did God, through Moses, give them Genesis as the first part of the five-volume work that they are going to hear on the plains of Moab? Why in the world would he give them Genesis? Genesis is written to the Exodus generation. It's not written to just give facts, although it does give facts. It's not written to just give trivial information. It's not given to just satisfy their curiosity. It is given for a particular purpose. And I would argue that the purpose of Genesis is this. The purpose of Genesis is to give Israel their identity and function in God's plan of redemption for the world. You see, Israel, as it is sitting on the plains of Moab and it's about to enter this territory, they need to know, why are they about to do this? It's not just a land grab. It's not just to steal some land from other people. No, they are authorized to do this, but why? It's not just for them as a people. It has a function in how they relate to all the nations of the world. See, God's plan from the beginning has always been for all the nations of the world, and yet he has used this particular people, Israel, to do specific things. And so as Israel is about to walk in, as it's about to take over the land of Canaan, they need to know where did they come from? Who are they? How do they function in God's plan for redemption in the world? That's what they need to know. It gives them identity. It gives them purpose. That's what Genesis does for the people of Israel. That's the occasion. That's the setup for where Israel is at. Now, that helps us kind of get oriented a little bit as far as the original audience is concerned, because we want to understand the author's intent, the original audience. But now we need to ask the question, okay, if that's God's purpose and Moses' purpose for the book of Genesis to give Israel their identity and function in God's plan of redemption for the world, how does Genesis do that? How does it work? How does it work? Now, there are two parts to that. There's a structural part to that. What is it, how is it structured? But it's not just structure in and of itself. It's also plot. What do I mean by plot? Well, when we hear stories, when we hear narrative, there's a plot development to it. Any movie you might watch, any book you might read, any good story has a plot development to it that is structured, ordered to give us information to give us uh, character development to give us, in this case, identity and purpose for the people of Israel. So how does Genesis do this? It does this first through this element that you have probably noticed if you've read through Genesis at all, this little phrase that keeps happening again and again and again, these are the generations of. 
These are the generations of. Really what that designates, and we'll, I'll, I'll show you uh, where all of those phrases show up, but really what that designates, when we talk about the generations of, really what it's designating is these are the people born of X. So when it says something like these are the generations of Adam, what that's pointing to is these are the people who are born of Adam. So the person who's listed in this little phrase uh, is not the person, the, the account is not focused on the person itself. It's actually focused what happens after that person. So let me give you an example. Let's go to Genesis 5, Genesis 5, 1. This is not the first of these statements. Um, I'll back up to the first here in a minute, but let me just read a couple of these for you. Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam, meaning these are, this is the book of those and concerning those who were born of Adam. So Adam's already been talked about in the previous chapters. What this focuses on, especially right away, is those who come from Adam, those who are born of Adam. That's what the account concerns. You can see the next one in Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. These are those born of Noah. And it talks immediately about Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, obviously, if you know Genesis 6 and the, 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 the account that happens after this, it does focus on Noah. It does talk about Noah, but it ultimately ends up talking about his kids and what happens with his kids after that. And then you have another one in Genesis 10.1. Genesis 10.1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So now they're going to focus on the kids of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And what happened to those kids? And so on and so forth. Genesis eleven ten. Genesis eleven ten. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. The next, Genesis eleven twenty seven. I just want to show you how ubiquitous this is in the book of Genesis and how it's structuring the book of Genesis. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah is the father of Abraham, of Abram. And then on and on it goes. On it goes. The next is the generations or the descendants of Ishmael, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, Esau, and then Jacob. And it ends with Jacob. So what we need to understand is this how Genesis is structured. Now, why do we care? Well, again, we care because this is the, uh, the element that is f where Moses and Moses to the people of Israel is focusing their attention. He's focusing their atten his attention primarily on people. Because each of these statements means we're focusing on the kids of this person and what happened to them. Now, the question is, Why? Why is it focusing on all these people? Why do these genealogies just matter? They're, 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 why, why is there this focus in the book of Genesis? Well, it's there because of what happens in the earliest chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 4. There is no generations of statement to begin the book. Instead, there's a heading of Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it's related uh, all the way through 2, 3, how the heavens and the earth were created. Uh, but then we get the first of these statements in verse 4, 
of chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In other words, uh, okay, the heavens of the earth have been created. Uh, let's talk about what came from the heavens of the earth, the people that came out of the heavens of the earth. And it focuses on, um, it focuses on Adam and Eve and their kids all the way up through Genesis 4. What happens in Genesis 1 through 4 sets the stage for everything else, not only in the book of Genesis, but the rest of the Bible and the rest of history. Everything starts, the plot of Genesis and the plot of history starts in Genesis 1 through 4. It sets up for why we have all of these. These are the people born of so-and-so in the rest of Genesis and even in the rest of Scripture. It answers the question why there's this focus on people in the book of Genesis and why there's this focus on uh, even genealogy spread throughout the rest of the Scriptures. So what does Genesis 1 through, 1 through 4 tell us? How does it start the plot, the plot of God's story? Well, what we find in Genesis 1 through 4 is that God creates an ordered temple world and garden. That's kind of the imagery that gets used in Genesis 1 and 2 is God not only is creating a world, he is creating a world that is structured, that is ordered, and that is his temple to dwell with a kingly and a priestly people. That's how mankind is originally designed, a kingdom of priests to rule as God's stewards over the rest of his creation on earth and to have intimate fellowship with God. They are to cultivate and guard God's creation as priests and kings. And this relationship is not only one of responsibility and stewardship, but one of sonship, intimacy. You see, God's original plan is that for a kingdom. God's plan has always been for a kingdom, and what do you have to have for a kingdom? To have a kingdom, you have to have a people, you have to have a place, and you have to have a rule. You have to have a people, you have to have a place, and you have to have a rule in submission to God. God alone is the ultimate authority over everything. God alone rules over everything. But as he has designed his kingdom for earth, his stewardship kingdom given to Adam and Eve and their kids, it is dominated by a people, a citizenry, if you will, a place, a realm, and a rule in submission to God. And what you have to understand is as you look in Genesis 1 and 2, everything that in God's original creation and design is characterized by blessing, abundance, peace, prosperity. That is how God has designed it. That is the setup for the tension in the plot. The tension starts in Genesis 3, where one of the creatures animated by uh, what we find out later is a satanic force. In, the, in Genesis 3, we have this serpent who deceives man and woman to try to become independent ruling authorities. So rather than being steward kings under God, they are seeking to usurp God's authority and become their own gods and become the masters of their own destiny to become the rulers of their own lives and to dictate as they choose. And in so doing, they're deceived by the serpent and really become enslaved under his rule. 
And what happens after this, you might expect that, okay, God is going to come in and he's just going to wipe everyone out and start over, but he doesn't do that. Instead, by grace, he has a plan for the restoration of all things. You see, what's amazing is God doesn't ever, never gets rid of his original plan. God never gets rid of his plan for human beings to reign over the world in submission to him. He never gets rid of that plan. That plan, that kingdom plan, permeates the rest of the scriptures and makes sense of the storyline of the rest of the scriptures. But why do we have all this focus in Genesis on people? These are the generations of, these are the people born of so-and-so. It's one verse. One verse when God is speaking against this enemy, this serpent who's deceived the man and the woman, says this in Genesis 3.15, to the serpent, to the enemy, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what that sets up is two things. First, it sets up two warring camps of human beings. There are the offspring of the woman who, as we find out in the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, are those aligned with God and his purposes. You could think, and we see this in Genesis 4, you see Abel and you have Cain, two warring factions. You have the line of Seth, the replacement for Abel, and the line of Cain, two warring factions. One aligned with the serpent and his aims in the world, and the other aligned with God and his aims in redeeming the world. But then you also notice in 315, there's this singular promise. He, a male offspring, and we'll talk more about this first when we get there, shall bruise your head, the head of the serpent, crush the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, why is that significant? Because the serpent stepped onto the scene and everything went bad. Everything the, the perfect creation, the perfect temple order that God created in creation was thrown into chaos. Not irrevocably, because what's intimated here is that once this male offspring comes, he's going to crush the head of the serpent and full restoration back to the original plan is going to happen. Now that sets up the rest of the plot of Genesis and the rest of the plot of the scriptures. You can now understand why Genesis would be so filled with these genealogies, with these, these are the people born of so-and-so. What's going on with the genealogies? What's going on with the structure of Genesis? They're looking, they're searching for this individual who's supposed to restore all things. You can see that right away when, uh, in chapter four, when um, Eve gives birth to Cain, she's excited because she thinks it's the one. And he's not. And there's a lot of, and he's not, and he's not, and he's not. As we go through the generations, as we go through the genealogies, as we go through the lists, but there's always this search because God has promised for this male offspring of the serpent to restore all things. And so actually, when you look at how Genesis works, 
there's actually different types of statements about these are the generations of. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam, or the people born of Adam, the, the sons born of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 900 year, 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died, 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 and he died. Uh, that's what Genesis 5 is doing. But what is Genesis 5 tracing? It's looking, we call this a linear genealogy, like a tunnel. Okay, is it this one? Nope. 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 But we know this promise is supposed to come, so we're going to keep looking. And then you have other types of uh, genealogies and statements. Genesis 6, 9. We can look at this one again. These are the generations or those born of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then we don't have a genealogy. We have a narrative account of what happened with Noah and then his sons and daughters and how that all happened. But there's still in the background operating this understanding. We're looking for this male offspring. And then you have things like Genesis 10.1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And then it lists three genealogies because there's three sons. Sons of Shem, the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham. And why, why we got three genealogies listed? Well, what Genesis does is it often lists genealogies, especially multiple genealogies, or the genealogies of a non-central character like Ishmael or Esau to say, that's the rejected line. So what we find out is the line of the sea, the line of the male offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent is going to come through Shem, not Ham or Japheth. It's going to come through uh, then Terah, and then Abraham, and then Isaac. It's not going to come through Ishmael. So in Genesis 25, 12 through 18, we get a genealogy for Ishmael. These are the generations of Ishmael, but only to signal it's not going to come from Ishmael. And with Jacob and Esau, uh, we get a couple genealogies for Esau, but only to say it's not going to come through Esau. It's going to come through Isaac. And so you see how the structure of Genesis begins to work. It's all about the people. And in particular, it's all about a person. And it's all about the search for that person. It's all about the search for that person. Who is going to crush the head of the serpent? And who's going to bring us back? And remember, what is God's original plan? God's original plan is for a kingdom, for a people to be human beings to rule under him in a world of blessing, in a place. It's not only a people, but a place and a rule that is in submission to God. Now, Genesis, as I've said, focuses mainly on the dimensions of people. It also focuses on the dimensions of place, because you can't have a kingdom without a place. It focuses on a land. As you read through Genesis, you, you begin to understand that, yes, we're looking for a people, and that people is being created, that people is being shaped 
and we're looking for this individual, particular individual, but it's always in connection with a place. Hence, the promised land. Promised land. And not only is there a promised land, there's also a rule. There's also the promise of a king that eventually becomes identified with that one offspring of the woman who's supposed to come. You can see this promise of even a ruler, a king to come in Genesis 17, 5 through 6, when part of the covenantal structure with Abraham, there's this big turning point in Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, there's the kind of the focus on all the nations of the world, and then in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, there's this promise to Abraham After all these cursings, after all of this turmoil, God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And in Genesis 17, 5 through 6, we get that elaborated on. Then Abraham fell on his face, and and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. There's a kingly people coming. There's a king, king coming. Even at the end of Genesis, this theme of king and rule continues. Genesis 49, 8. When we look at the sons, the those born of the generations of Jacob. When Jacob's about to die, he pronounces blessing and really prophecy over his offspring. And of those, there's particular attention given to Judah and to Joseph. In verse 8 of chapter 49, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a people, there's a place, and there's a king coming. And as you've noticed, even as we cited in Genesis 17, And we find through the rest of Genesis is God is not only looking to a return to that original idea of a people and a place and a rule in submission to God. Not only looking for the individual offspring of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent and restore things back. But he advances his program. He advances his plan through covenants. First with, I would argue, an Adamic covenant covenant made with Adam at creation, giving the fundamental ground rules for humanity. But then with Noah, as he comes out out of the ark, as God rescues him, he reestablishes and re, redictates the same, most of the same things that he said to Adam, but uh, calibrated for a fallen world. And then the Abrahamic covenant, which promises a people, a place, a land, blessing which forges, as we said, what's the purpose of Genesis? It's to give, it's to give the people of Israel who are about to enter the promised land their identity. What are we all about? What are we all about? Well, we are the people that God has chosen 
That's how Genesis answers that question. We are the people that God has chosen. It shows their pedigree as the people that God has chosen. It shows the covenant that God has made with them um, with, um, through the Abrahamic covenant. And it shows that there's going to be a king coming from them as the nation of Israel. It shows how God has specially created a covenant relationship with this people to advance his plan and program to redeem the world. To redeem the world from a state of curse after Adam and Eve fell, from cursing the ground, cursing of people, God's judgment, to eventually return to a state of blessing. If you were to look at Two passages in all of Genesis. I was trying to think about that for the scripture reading this week. Like, if there were two passages in all of Genesis that would kind of summarize what Genesis does, it'd be Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 22, 15 through 18, I think. Again, chapters 1 through 11 in Genesis, they're all focused on the nations at large. What's going on in the nations at large? But then there's this particular focus that starts to happen with Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go for, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you as a place, and I will make you a great nation, a people, and I will bless you, blessing, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the ground will be blessed. That's God's program. That's what Israel is supposed to come away with on the, uh, the plains of Moab. You are God's people, but not just for yourselves, but to reach the nations of the world, to be a blessing to the nations of the world. But that's not just going to happen to them as a corporate people. If we were to go to that second passage that I think would be a good one to summarize where Genesis is going... It's the sacrifice of Isaac, Genesis 22, 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. There's the singular offspring of the woman who's going to conquer and who's going to destroy the enemies of God. And in your offspring all shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed your voice. See, Israel's going to be a blessing to the nations as a people, and they're going to have a land, but there's this particular male offspring who's going to be a king and who's going to bless all of the nations of the world. In a lot of ways, Genesis is sad, very sad. You read through it, and there is much pain. We think of Genesis 3. Everything is perfect, and it goes to kablooey through sin. And then sin ravages the world. Uh, even with God's people, even with those who are aligned with God's purposes, you think of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they are very sinful people, and they do horrific things. And yet, God still uses them. 
In the midst of a sinful world, in a fallen world, God is still working and working to bring about his plan and working to bring about restoration. And so by the time you get to the end of Genesis, you get kind of this summary theology, this retrospective with the story of Joseph and his brothers that kind of encapsulates all of what God is doing in the book. You remember what happens with Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery down in Egypt, and yet he becomes second in command in Egypt, and he eventually provides food not only for his family, but for many nations of the world so that they can survive. And then his brothers, after Jacob dies, are freaked out that, oh, now Joseph's going to come after us. And what Joseph says really kind of encapsulates a lot of the theology of Genesis. He says this, Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Evil has just been a constant refrain since the fall in the book of Genesis, all this evil that's happening and the evil that was done to Joseph. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your, the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Here it is. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And that in large measure encompasses what is going on in Genesis. There's evil, there's sin that has happened in the world. And yet God has the ability and is turning that evil ultimately towards good and for his own glory. That's a flavor of how Genesis works. How do we expect Genesis to change us? Because we're not Israelites. We're not on the plains of Moab. We're not about to conquer a nation or several nations of people. So how should Genesis change us? Well, we start by ask, answering that question by looking at the application to the original audience. How was the original audience supposed to apply Genesis? Well, we get, again, we said the purpose is to give them identity, but what does that look like? What are they supposed to do as they're about to enter this land? Well, they're supposed to come away from Genesis living as God's covenant people awaiting for the fulfillment of his promises. Now, that phrase, the fulfillment of God's promises, that's eschatology. When we talk about God fulfilling his kingdom plans and purposes, Genesis talks about that, and it's setting up for eschatology, the things of the end. The things of the end are the things of God's restoration when he restores all things. Well, for the people of Israel, they, eschatology is very practical to them because they need to live as God's covenant people as distinct while they wait for God to fulfill his promises. Uh, how else are they supposed to live? They're supposed to live, as, as I mentioned, as distinct from the various nations who worship false gods. As Genesis is written and you walk through Genesis, you find out that idolatry is rampant. Even the creation account is written against common conceptions of how the creation came to be by false gods. And so what does all that say is if Genesis gives uh, Israel identity, it also tells them if you're God's covenant people, then you need to live distinct 
from all these various nations, all these various nations that you might encounter who worship false gods. They don't worship the creator God, the true God. What else are they supposed to take away from Genesis? They're supposed to take away trusting in God's promises, power, and intervention in history, despite appearances to the contrary. You think of the story of Joseph, it really looks like uh, things go sideways with Joseph. I mean, he gets these dreams about people bowing down to him and things going well. And then all of a sudden he's sold into slavery. Uh, he's in prison for multiple years. It looks totally sideways from the, what God seemed to promise initially. And yet what? Ultimately, God, through his providence, through his power, through his intervention in history, bring things back. Well, the people of Israel are going to need to know that lesson going into the promised land, that many times God's promises seem like, where are they? Where are they coming? Where's God's intervention? And yet know that God is working over a longer time span and with great providence and power than they could possibly think of. The original audience is supposed to come away with trusting God's ability to restore and bless and even turn what was meant for evil for good. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where evil exists. They live in a world where evil existed. But they need to trust that God will restore and bring blessing and turn even what was meant for evil towards good. They need to come away with this reality, too, from the book of Genesis, that God blesses obedience and judges disobedience and evil. The law that Moses gives to them on the plains of Moab, it ends with basically with this promise of blessing for obedience and judgment for disobedience. And they can look back to Abraham. They can look back to Adam and they can see, yeah, there was blessing for obedience. There was cursing for disobedience. So we need to live in light of that reality. Now that's for them. All of those things are for them. What's there for us? Because we need to respect the reality that some changes have happened. We're not the people standing on the plains of Moab about ready to go into the promised land. But there are connections with us, deep connections, profound connections. And the first one is this, that the male offspring of the woman has come. All those genealogies that looked forward to the male offspring of the woman... Uh, you notice that Matthew, which we just finished, what did it start with? A genealogy. Showing what? Here he is. Here's the Christ. He has come. And he has come as the ruler, the rightful ruler, not only of Israel, but all the nations of the world. And if you are in Christ, if you've repented, placed your faith, and become a disciple of Christ, then you... You are his new covenant people. You belong to that one. You know the offspring that was promised. But you also live in this tension because um, the head of the serpent hasn't been crushed yet. Like, what do I mean? Well, there is t- Satan is still described in the New Testament as the ruler of this world. He is still described as the serpent who has sway over the, the, the things of this world, which is why Paul... In Romans 16, 20 says, the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. Though Jesus has done the decisive action in expelling Satan through his death and resurrection on the cross, we as his people, we still wait for the final crushing that Jesus will bring at his final coming. 
We also know this reality too, that Paul reflects on this in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, that as the nations, as Gentiles, primarily in this room, we are Gentiles, believers in Christ, we have received the blessings, many of the blessings that were promised the nations through Abraham. Galatians 3, 6 through 9 talks about that, that the scriptures proclaim the gospel ahead of time in saying that all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. Well, Christ is Abraham's offspring, and we have been blessed and receive blessing through him. Many of the applications that were there for the original audience carry over. We do need to live as God's covenant people awaiting for the fulfillment of his promises. We still need to live that way. We still need to have Genesis shape our identity and our mindset. We still need to live as distinct from the various nations who worship false gods. They don't usually come in the form of stone and wood these days. They come in the form of ideologies and things like consumerism and sex and power. They look different, but we still need to live distinct from the nations around us as God's covenant people. We still need to trust God's promises, power, and intervention in history despite appearances to the contrary, we still need to trust God's ability to restore and bless, even turning what was meant for evil towards good. And we still need to remember that God blesses obedience and curses and judges disobedience and evil. You know what's amazing is when you think about sharing the gospel with someone, and you, at some point the conversation of human history and evil is going to come up. We have a basis for explaining all of human history. We can give that basis as we talk to people about the gospel. We can explain, here's how God designed things. Here is why there is sin and evil in the world because of man's disobedience. And yet here is where all of human history is going with a people, a place, a rule, and a particular king that has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. It gives a context for the gospel when we frame it in that way, and Genesis helps us do that. What do I want us to learn as we come to Genesis? What do I want FBC to learn? I want you to learn this. I want you to understand God's plan so that you can live in light of it. If you understand where history is going you can live in light of it. Genesis gives us the foundations of our biblical worldview. In particular, I want you to understand the framework of God's covenants that advances his plan. Uh, When you don't understand God's covenants, because God's covenants are how he advances his plan, uh, a lot of distortions and misunderstanding happens. So I want you to understand. That's one of the things we're going to focus on as we go through Genesis, understanding God's covenants and how they advance his plan. And above all, I want you to see this. I want you to see the grandeur of the creator God, his hatred for evil, severe judgment, and yet his grace in pursuing restoration with a sinful humanity. I want you to leave Genesis with a big view of God. Because that's what Israel needed on the plains of Moab as they were about to enter. And that's what we need as we seek to live faithfully as God's covenant people now. You need to understand the scope of Genesis to begin to shape your identity as God's covenant 
people. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much in Genesis. There's so, it's so beautiful and amazing and perfect in how it, how it works. Lord, help us to understand it rightly. Guard us from misconceptions. Help us to understand your plan and your program, how you use covenants to do that, and how we think about ourselves even as your new covenant people. Help us to connect rightly with Genesis. We thank you that we live now in an era where you have sent the male offspring of the, of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has come, has died for our sin and our evil, has redeemed us from the Father's wrath, has expelled, has, has, has cut the power of Satan's rule, and we thank you that you will send your son again to do the final death blow and crushing the head of the serpent and restoring your kingdom, bringing us into the place amongst the people and with the rule that you originally designed from Genesis 1 and 2. Lord, help us to wait patiently. Help us to trust your promises. Help us to trust your intervention in the world. And help us to reclaim your plan and your purposes as we proclaim the gospel. Help us to not shy away from what seems like a ridiculous worldview to many around us, but that is explains all of human history. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction. I will read from Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verses 10 through 13. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Church, you are sent to proclaim the mighty works of God.